Jennifer Morgan took the helm of Greenpeace International in April 2016. She was formerly the global director of the climate program at the World Resources Institute. A climate activist, she has been a leader of large teams at major organizations. And her other ports of call have included the Worldwide Fund for Nature, Climate Action Network, and E3G. Jennifer Morgan, welcome to the One Planet podcast. Thanks. Great to be here. It's the 50th anniversary of Greenpeace. And just for those who don't know the history and its founding mission, just to tell us a little bit about it and how you came to it. Greenpeace started in 1971, and our origins are in the northwest of North America. When back in 1971, a group of concerned individuals wanted to stop the nuclear testing of weapons off of the Alaskan coast by the U.S. military because of the devastation that it was going to cause to local ecosystems and livelihoods. So they decided to charter a small fishing vessel and they set sail from Vancouver, planning to actually prevent the testing by being present in the waters where the tests were actually going to take place. And the weather conditions actually detained them or prevented them from, from reaching the testing site. They had to return to port thinking that they had failed. But actually what they found when they arrived back was a crowd of people who were inspired by their courage and by their actions. And that was the beginning of the Greenpeace movement. Tell us a little bit about your path to joining the organization. I've been working as a climate activist since, oh gosh, 1994, I guess, and have worked and had really the privilege of working for a number of different organizations. The Worldwide Fund for Nature, where I headed up their climate program, which is a think tank based out of the UK, and uh, the World Resources Institute, which is a institution in Washington, but works globally, where I headed up their climate program. So always trying to find places to make change. And what inspired you? I mean, who are your teachers or who inspired you on that path? I think my first teacher and inspiration was my sister. She is a, a biologist, a botanist, actually, and she's the one who introduced me to nature, really, and, and really connected me to how important the natural world was for me. And the second is Petra Kelly, who was one of the founders of the Green Party, the German Green Party. And I read her book, Fighting for Hope, back in 1989 when I was a graduate student, and it brought together the different struggles that are there, the feminist struggle, the peace movement, the environment movement, all into uh, one system that we all need to be working to, uh, to change. What are you hoping to achieve at COP26 and beyond? I think over the years, what we found is it's a, a combination really of dogged optimism, but also, you know, bearing witness and people power around specific outcomes that can really change things. So I think in the context of what the COP means, that means really exposing what is a real solution to climate change and what is a false solution. So we really need, I mean, it's imperative that, that each country, particularly the wealthiest countries, commit to do more and to reduce their emissions more. And I think by the COP and at the COP, we need to have enough commitments from countries that they are, that we can keep this 
goal of not having global average temperature go above 1.5 degrees in sight. Otherwise, we would face climate chaos. But at the same time, there's a lot of initiatives out there right now, voluntary corporate initiatives that are claiming they're going to be net zero, but they are focused in on, on offsetting emissions. So planting trees, for example, rather than reducing their, their oil production, or they're looking for things like using fossil gas as a solution. And that's what we would call a false solution. And that's where we will expose. We will investigate. We will demonstrate really what's, what's not on for that. And COP26 needs to obviously be about the way forward that combines climate justice and racial justice and social justice together and doesn't allow these false solutions to move forward. And how can we as individuals put pressure on the legislators and on corporations? I mean, what are some ways that we can all get involved, even those that we might not feel it's directly in our power? First of all, I want to say that each individual action just makes a big difference. It all adds up. And for people to understand that when you act for climate action or for climate justice, you are connected to millions of people around the world. So that's just, that's one thing. I think the way people can get involved are multiple and it really depends on what, what you would like to do. So I think getting involved, it, it could be on the local level where you are seeing, you know, you're really sick of sitting in traffic and having massive pollution around you. So you want to work to have a mobility system that has bike transport where your city and you get in touch with your city urban transport minister and says, put your money into public transport, not into more roads. It could be on the national level where you know your government is uh, going into this Paris meeting is going to be needing to decide how much more they're going to commit to. So you could get in touch and, and write to your, your head of state, even to your minister of the environment or transport or energy and tell your story about why you care and why it's so important for them to take uh, leadership. Or it could just be a discussion at your dining table, right? With your cousin or your grandparent or your mother or your father who don't really understand the climate emergency and that you step into that and you have the courage to say, you know, this is really important for me, and you open up that conversation. Those are all acts of courage, and they are all very important. Oh, that's excellent advice. It's it's really been empowering just to see the example and the progress of Green Priest as well from your beginnings. And Hans, I believe you wanted to ask some questions about corporate responsibility. Yes, I was wondering if you could explain to the listeners what is the role of the finance sector and what actions these sectors still need to take in order to do their part? Sure. So there are different players in the financial sector. So I think there's the government and how the government actually regulates the financial sector. And right now on the climate issue, there isn't any. <laughs> I'll come back to that. And the second are the banks, either public banks who are linked in with the government policy or private banks. And what we've seen right now is that there's a lot of engagement out there about and statements by different banks of what they're doing on climate, how they're, they're shifting away from fossil fuels investments. But actually, if you look at the record, you will find that since Paris, I mean, there's been billions, trillions invested actually in fossil fuels from these major banks, from, from the ones that you would know best, whether it be Chase or 
uh, Citibank, et cetera. And so when they come forward, and this is some of the false solutions I was talking about, and say, hey, we're going to go net zero, you really need to look carefully and see what's in there. Because with one side of their mouth, they're saying net zero and we're green, and out of the other, they're continuing to invest in fossil fuels. And I think the key, though, really, is we need to get a system in place that doesn't allow that to happen, where banks have to take into account the risks that their investments bring about. So whether that be the risks that come from the climate impacts that they are that their investments are creating, or the, the risks that just come from, you know, say investing in a pipeline that's then not going to be able to operate for that long because the climate crisis is happening and you're going to have to switch energy sources to renewable energy. So that would be called like a stranded asset. So what we really need, and that's another thing people can do, it sounds super complex, but you don't have to understand all the details, is to get in touch with your treasury secretary or your finance minister and say you want binding regulations of the financial sector because I mean, just think about all that money and where it's going. And, and then you can also, you know, last year, I think it was last year, gosh, with COVID, it's time flies. You know, I cut up my Chase credit card and said, I don't want my money going to a bank that continues to invest in fossil fuels. And then I called them and I let them know that that was why I had done what I had done. So I think there's different levels, but it's a very important sector. I think it's become more and more transparent really what's happening there. And there's lots of resources online, lots of great campaigns that are happening in, in the financial sector space because it, it can move fast. I mean, I, I think the other thing just to know on financial sector is if you're looking at the numbers on investments on renewable energy, it's much more profitable if you're looking for good investments to invest in those energy sources, which are now competitive and often much cheaper uh, than fossil fuels. So that's the direction we need to go in. I salute your example of, you know, cutting up your Chase credit card. But I feel that so many of these, these supply chains and things, they're inefficient. We're subsidizing them. They're not, they wouldn't be pro as profitable. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's, if you think about, there's different ways that we subsidize different things, but do you think about a supply chain that goes all the way into the Brazilian rainforest? and uh, a supermarket that buys products that includes deforestation in the products, you know, that are made and then shipped across the world to Tesco in the US, in, in the UK. And by buying that product, you're actually supporting the drive of deforestation. And an individual, I mean, how are you supposed to know that? So you really need to get the laws in place and you need to actually turn the trading system completely on its head so that, number one, you don't have that deforestation happening because people have alternatives on the ground. There are local solutions. And number two, you have a trading system that actually bans deforestation in supply chains moving forward. And another thing you focus on is that plastics pollution. And I feel so guilty about it because I can't, all this throwaway culture, I, I'm still part of it. I don't know how to disengage from that. But what are some of the interesting solutions or what are ways on an individual level beyond just like not using, you know, plastic bags? 
Yeah, sure. I think I think we're all we all struggle with this and I think that there's some practical ways that you can engage. You can on an individual level I I had such a great example a few years ago. I I was in China, I was sitting next to one of our volunteers who was part of a community of 19,000 youth who were living a plastic-free lifestyle life. And what they did is when they went to their night markets, they brought their own Tupperware, right? And they shared tips with each other about how to do this so that you're not by yourself all the time when you're trying to do this. So one thing to do is just to look for communities out there who are trying to do this together. The other is to really look for grocery stores where you can buy things in bulk, right? Where you, because it's not just, uh, I think companies would have us you know, like a, a Nestle or a Unilever, they would have us say, well, let's just recycle more. But it's actually about completely different business models. It's about being able to go into a supermarket and be able to refill, you know, be able to get to bring your containers in and get more shampoo, to be able to get more dishwashing soap. But you need to have a different business model that comes with that. So I think the other thing an individual can do is go into your local supermarket and ask, that for that more of the kind of bulk bulk goods that you can get and ask how they are particularly working to to reduce plastics. Yes, I we have to do more to to pressurize. It's been difficult during COVID, of course. Yeah, of course. I think there, you know, even what I try and do in my neighborhood is if I go out, you know, and there's still takeout, I bring my own Tupperware with me, you know. And that is normally allowed if you bring it yourself and you, you know, they take the, what you give them, then you can, you, you can reuse it. Yes, on this topic of the individual and what can different people do, what kind of advice do you give people in terms of uh, how can they tell whether something is a good commitment or whether they need to push for more? Great question. I think one place to go is the climate action tracker. This is a great tool for people who are interested in tracking countries. They not only give different gradings for how and go into all the different, I mean, it can be as simple or as complex as you want. It also looks at how much the country's commitment helps us reduce the temperature rise. So that's a great resource to look at. I think on companies, it's a bit harder to be honest with you. I think that there's really, and this is one of the challenges going into this year's COP, is you have initiatives like Race to Zero, where you have initiatives that are out there where there's no oversight, there's no accountability, there's no tracking. And you have organizations like Greenpeace, but others that will try and call out companies when it's pretty clear that they aren't, aren't walking the talk. You can, on plastics, there is, and I'm blanking on the name of it, there's a great initiative that looks at zero plastic. And if you can go and they rank companies to see how they're doing on their plastics based on different surveys. But I think the main thing is to, for people, and, and I think this is really important on the individual action, so we can all make a difference in what we do. But we have to get the companies themselves who are responsible for how they work and the governments that regulate or oversee those companies to act. And that's where I get very skeptical of companies that are doing voluntary things, but at the same time, they are lobbying against climate laws or companies that are putting the responsibility on individuals to reduce when actually they're working very hard to keep the status quo. 
So it's a combined thing. You can take action and do things, but also as important as being active, putting pressure, asking questions. Those are, those are incredibly important things to do. And on the question of, well, sustainable energy, renewable energy, and nuclear, you know, some people put forward that there may be cleaner forms of nuclear, and I, I sometimes I get confused because maybe there are developments. I think, I mean, nuclear energy is not safe or affordable, and it takes a long time <laughs> as well. So... If you're worried about risks, I mean, you know, and whether it be a, an accident or whether it be the, the waste that stays with us forever, nuclear is definitely too risky. If you're worried about speed and cost, you know, it is so much uh, more affordable and so much has so many more co-benefits to go with renewable energy with wind or solar. And it, it just nuclear can't compete on that. We have the solutions. The technologies exist right now in wind and solar and uh, energy efficiency. There are roadmaps that can get us there to zero emissions. It's about political will and it's about courage. And you can get there without these types of false solutions like nuclear energy. It's good to know. Sometimes you hear so much conflicting information and you think, will it be possible with these others? I know the technology is there. It's the, as you say, the implementation. The implementation, indeed. So in terms of the forthcoming campaigns, where are you focusing your most energy? I think right now our, our focus is really to uh, phase out fossil fuel and at the same time and, and to do it in a, in a managed way. So first of all, I think it's, you know, it's, it's clear that the workers in fossil fuel, whether it be oil or coal or gas, that their work has brought the world into a, a place where it is today, where there's great, great development, not everywhere, but great, you know, development. And, they, and as we need to transition away from fossil fuels, then we really need to have a worker-led just transition for those workers who need to have different types of jobs. So we need to have, so Greenpeace is working very much to have a, a social and ecological trend away from fossil fuels, where, where those workers get trained for different, for different jobs, maintain their social benefits, and can you know, be part of, of society in a, in a dignified way in their communities. That's a big focus right now. I think the other is really to shine a light on the uh, system that where, where oil and gas companies continue to benefit and profit from public money. We were talking about public money before. They have received tens of billions of dollars of taxpayer dollars in the COVID crisis and the executives have gotten richer. And so I think Greenpeace will be playing more and more of a role and continue to play a role of trying to shine a light and showing at, at how the deception by oil and gas companies to try and keep the status quo fight against climate action and not be moving us into the world we we really need. And I think for the COP in, in the end of this year, hopefully, there's in no way that those companies should be given any kind of a platform because they're not part of the solution right now. Sometimes there's a perception that environment is against economy or somehow the environment is on the fringes of economic discussions. How would you explain the role that the environment and, and the economy play? I think more and more we see an active participation 
in the environmental movement and different groups coming together, such as trade unions and green collectives, because they see that it's not this binary environment versus jobs. I mean, we've heard President Biden say, when I think climate change, I think jobs. They come together. And I think we're seeing that it, it, from the perspective of whether you're working in a, in a trade union, whether you're working in an environment movement, whether you're working for racial justice, that we're all unified actually in trying to create a better world together that reduces inequalities, that brings more justice for uh, social justice, climate justice, and racial justice. And we're stronger together actually in highlighting how a neoliberal system has just been prioritizing wealth for a few. So I think you will continue to hear opponents or corporations try and, and get that narrative of jobs versus the environment, but it's, it's just not the case anymore. They need to, they can come together and you're seeing much more work across movements to, to get those power shifts so that we can have a green and just future. It's very exciting to to think about it because another thing that we think about a lot now is that there's been so much automation. But if you're preparing for a new green economy, people have to be a part of it, and not it's not just a machine revolution. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think individual people and workers need to be part of it in maybe two ways. One is in the transitions that I talked about. You know, the managed transitions. The workers need to be part of that conversation, and they need to be defining. What is it that they need in order to transition into a different job? I think the other where people are involved, obviously, is in the jobs themselves. So if you're looking at job growth in the United States over the last years, one of the top job uh, creation areas is solar. And it's something that continues because, okay, you have to install, but then you have to maintain. Or if you're thinking about if you're in Poland and you've been working in the shipyards, well, your skills, or if you've been working on an oil rig, are very relevant for offshore wind, right? And so I think thinking about those pieces, I think the renewable energy transformation is actually just a huge, op not, it's not a, just an opportunity, it's a responsibility, I think, because you can bring together the needs of people with the need to go to a zero carbon economy at, at the same time. And how do you look to, well, poor countries or indigenous cultures and what have you learned from them and some of their practices that we could be adopting? Well, I think as far as indigenous cultures and indigenous peoples, it's very clear if you look at the, the, the forests and lands across the world, that the places that are most intact, the, the places that are holding their biodiversity are places where indigenous peoples live. And I think, you know, another big part of the climate crisis, obviously, is what's happening on land. And we have to also be reducing deforestation, but also protecting ecosystems and nature. And there, I think listening to and protecting indigenous peoples is a very, it's a core part. It's like integral to, to solutions. And I think, you know, there's always this attitude, I think, of developed countries who can bring the solutions to developing countries. But I think there, you know, if you look, if you look at places like Costa Rica and what they're doing in their in their bus fleets and how they're treating their their whole economy where they have a focus less on the short-term GDP, but actually more on well-being of planet and people, the developed countries can find tremendous examples there. During your time for World Wide Fund for Nature, what were you involved in and how did that, 
help you develop your thinking about this? I was quite involved, this was quite some time ago, but in early campaigns about coal (laughs) and helping or understanding the importance of meeting people where they're at. And by that, I mean, you know, many people have no idea, understandably, they don't need to. I mean, this is in more in developed countries, I would say, but where their electricity comes from and the fact that the source of that electricity is actually very important for for environmental and, and economic health. So one of the campaigns we ran was really working on the ground called Power Switch to try and engage people both in understanding that, but also demanding that they are able to have more renewable energy that comes into their homes. I think, you know, at WWF, obviously, with a focus on the conservation of nature, I think we really learned then that the protected areas actually really have to be thought of with people together and finding solutions there that really follow and support Indigenous peoples is, was, is critical. So I was wondering how this concept of climate justice and racial justice comes into play into the work of Greenpeace and in general. I think where it comes into play is in a, in a couple of different places. So if you look at the studies, you will see that people who live in poorer regions, whether in developing countries or in developed countries, tend to be the ones that are more vulnerable to climate change impacts and environmental impacts. Obviously, they are the poorest. And also people of color also often are are the ones who suffer the most from those impacts. But I think the thing, the extra jump in that is that if you look at the, the economic system that has created the poverty and has created racial injustices. It is the same economic system that has also created climate injustice and climate change. And so when you start realizing that, then you see, okay, so we, as a a Greenpeace perspective, it means that we are active in, you know, calling for people's vaccine. We are active in calling, in Canada, we're, we're looking for a billionaire's tax, but we're looking for universal basic income because we know that that economic system that has so privileged a few is the same that we need to switch it fundamentally, both on the social side of things, but also obviously on the racial side of things. It means in, in the US and around the world where we support and are active in the Black Lives Matters movement, that we were working for essential workers and trying to get legislation passed for essential workers in different countries around the world during COVID. So I think it means that we're working for debt cancellation because we know that it is the poorest countries right now that are suffering from COVID and the debt that they are building up is just just puts in place a intergenerational further inequity and equality that is just not humane. So I think what it means from a Greenpeace perspective is that you'll see us much more active on systems change across the board of social, racial, and environmental justice. And I think, and of course, human rights as well, because it's all connected and we need to move away from, you know, and it it sounds, it's so embedded, I think now in how people think, but it, it wasn't always this way, you know, where the gross domestic product that what we measure our happiness on or our well-being on is is this short-term profit. We have to move away from that and actually have our decision makers put people, health, you know, human rights, social, education, environment up front 
ahead of that short-term corporate profit. My name is Hans Largon. I'm a collaborating podcaster with the One Planet Podcast and a sustainability graduate with a master's from the Harvard University Extension School. It's been fascinating to hear from Jennifer Morgan as she shares with us about the work of Greenpeace. She also talks about the importance of systems, seeing the interrelationship between the environment and finance, jobs, climate justice, deforestation, fossil fuels, and other areas, helps us understand the challenges we face and more effectively collaborate to find solutions. I was also inspired by the idea of us as individuals to continue pushing our institutions to do their part for a healthier planet. Keep listening for more insights from Jennifer Morgan, including words of advice for aspiring women leaders and young activists. Now back to the interview. We'll be seeing many more climate refugees and they're not recognized. Is that a valid refugee? You know, we're using their resources and in such a way that their lands are not, won't be habitable there. So how can we better organize it for that we have to validate their experiences and make their lands more habitable so we don't have this experience. I think there's a number of different ways. I mean, what you're describing in a way is what is often known as extractivism, where we have an economic system where we extract the resources out of the often developing countries for the benefit in wealthier countries or wealthier parts of society. Well, those who live there don't benefit from those resources at all. And that's, so I think it is a, in a way, it's a reorganization of our, there's different ways that you can then try and approach that. I think one is to bring about more localism in how we, in I would say I'm sitting in a developed country, resource our own food or resources there so that you're not participating in that system. But I think it's also a combination of really alternative development models on the ground. The governments there also in with solidarity from developed countries are able to start shifting away uh, from this type of extractivism and be providing the resources for communities there rather than having to export it. There's a whole literature, there's a, a whole set of examples there of how to move forward on more localized communities. It doesn't mean you do away completely with trade, but you flip it so that it's much fairer and that the benefits actually stay in the country rather than with the companies that export it. You know, a lot of us will be facing, and some of us now are facing uh, food insecurity. And I think about GM and its viabilities or how you stand on it or their ways. You know, if you look in, in the food system, it's, there's, there is enough food. The issues that are there are around solidarity on the local level, are around food waste, and are around large industrial agriculture that, that's benefiting from, again, extracting a resource. So you really need to go at it from a food system perspective. If we had a system that actually, I mean, if you just look in, in Europe on the common agricultural policy, the funds that go into large industrial agriculture versus going into organic agriculture or smaller scale agriculture, are it's immense. It, it has not been fixed yet. And, and just by shifting that piece, I think you would have certainly a healthier ecosystem and a healthier food source. I think 
the other piece is really on the food waste where the amount of food waste that occurs, I don't have the statistics in my head, but they're just extraordinary. And so I, you know, again, it's, it's really trying to shift both that system and also the culture of how you work together with it. It's not about GMOs. Yes, I think, I mean, it just boggles my mind when I think about uh, the possibility of patenting uh, seeds or ancient knowledge or and depriving cultures of that have cultivated it for years. That doesn't make sense to me. I mean, I understand that when there's technologies involved, but at the other time, you know, nature belongs to everyone, hopefully. Yes, hopefully. And I think that's, and we are so connected with nature. Right, I think this sense, and maybe that's something that the pandemic is bringing a bit about how connected we are to the health of nature. So whether you care about nature and the planet for, for nature's sake, or whether you care about it for human's sake, we have to, we have to change both ways. For this, I take inspiration. We were just recently doing an interview with Indrid Newkirk, the founder of PETA, and we were discussing, I like to talk about positive things and how we can take inspiration from animals and how they're so beautifully in harmony with their environment. And I just think that we're so stupid and not, and not advanced in the ways that we think we are. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I think when you, when you, experience an intact ecosystem and watch and see how it all works, you know, without humans and how, how interconnected we are. And I think that's the thing that on climate change is, is the piece that often, well, has been a driver for what I've done for all these years. If, if you understand that warmer oceans reduce the population of, of krill, these tiny little creatures that are fundamental for whales. And as the krill population goes down, the whale population goes down. And that's all because of pumping fossil fuels into the atmosphere and warming. I mean, it's, it's obviously a bit more complex than that, but this in interdependencies that we have both to understand, to respect them, but also to understand that we as humans are throwing it so, we have thrown it so out of balance. And that's the, the thing, you know, these next few years are so important to really fundamentally shift that, to shift the power away from those who are really just focused on that short-termism and into more intergenerational equity. We haven't talked about that much, but gosh, there was a, a bit of a, a sidebar, but I think it's really, if people don't know, there was a very important court case last week found in Germany where a group of youth took um, the government to court for not doing enough on climate change. And the highest court in the land, the constitutional court in uh, Germany found in favor of the plaintiffs that the government had not done, its targets were not enough. And therefore it was setting up young people to have to deal with climate chaos in the future. And therefore they, they required the government to increase their targets between now and 2030, which actually Chancellor Merkel has done today, which um, is quite interesting. But that's a youth movement. I mean, that's an incredible, incredible thing. And, and you can just see the shifting that's, that's starting to occur on that side of things as well. So that exciting, positive thing that gives me a lot of hope. <laughs> I agree. It's so it's so beautiful to see that, and it makes us want to all take more responsibility. Definitely building up on that point you just made about shifting. I was also wondering if you have any advice 
or again for the listeners, they might encounter people that maybe don't want this change to happen, or maybe they are not so connected to nature or are against the shift that, that some of us are working on. So how do you approach those kind of conversations? I think it's important to have those conversations. I think in order to do that, the first thing to know is you don't have to be a climate science expert. I think that the fossil fuel industry was really good in the past of making people feel like they had to know every detail of climate modeling in order to be able to be credible and have an argument. And I, you don't need to do that. You just need to know that the, the world scientists and all the governments of the world have kind of come together and seen climate change as, if not the most pressing threat, one of them. And I, I think you can make yourself familiar with the basics of that, but don't feel like you have to be a climate science expert. No, I think you can just cite the fact that that's the base of, you know, the thousands of scientists around the world and know that they're kind of back up and you can refer people to things like whether it be your local university or whether it be the National Academy of Sciences in your country, whether it be the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, whichever one is there. So that's just one thing to feel like you've got scientists have your back. I think another thing is just to really listen, like really listen about where the person is coming from. Is it a person who's afraid of losing their job? Is it a person who doesn't have the latest science? Is it a person who is afraid of change as a whole? Or I, I think oftentimes when people are opposed to things, sometimes it's, it's, there's a reason there. And so I think actively listening to the concern that's there and trying to play that back and find solutions is a good way of going about it. And, but I also think a key piece is then to make a judgment call in the conversation you know, can, is this person ready to come with you or not? And I think it depends the type of conversation. If it's a family conversation, of course, it's something different. But if it's more in a political conversation, then I think a key thing is to organize. So, you know, have your own conversation, but then know, you know, go out and find others who are with you because it doesn't take too many people, you know, to shift major decisions. I just gave you the example of four plaintiffs that have contributed to a major shift in, in Germany. So I would say then go and find others and build, build your own kind of collaboration and community to, to move forward. Because I think there are some people who may not be ready to come with you, but that doesn't mean that you shouldn't move forward. Do you think that that kind of mindset change is something that, I mean, I know that it's been happening in America, but what happened in Germany could happen in America with that level of accountability? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, heck, look at the last election, the Sunrise Movement in the United States Youth Movement had a major role in having the climate change issue and, and be front and center, the candidates, and you have a president who was elected with a mandate to act on climate, right? And I think certainly those mindset shifts can happen and are happening all around the world. And I think that's the key is to be thinking about the fact you were talking about throwaway society. I mean, my hope, my hope also is that going through this pandemic, people are thinking about what's important to them. And is the latest, you know, thing that you can go and kind of short-term thing you can go and buy, is that it? Or is it actually spending time with your friends and your family and having a, a good healthcare system? I think those are issues that everywhere around the world, those mindsets are, are moving. And also in this last period, you had mentioned, we are just seeing that 
we're really not that ready for catastrophes. I mean, we've come together, but we just are, I don't know, this this short-term last minute thinking that we have. I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful too. I know that you're an optimist, but you know, you have to work hard for that. But I, I'm hopeful that we, we are learning. I, I'm glad to hear that there are many initiatives now to make climate literacy part of, I mean, it's not in place, but climate literacy educational initiatives part of an educational requirement, I believe in, in the States. I know it's, it's in some uh, countries, it's um, more part of the system, but I know it's hard to find that hope. But what has given you hope in the last few years? I, I think that there are lots of reasons to be hopeful. I think the first, the first reason is because the movements have grown the level of activism that we see around um, again, climate justice linked with other movements has just increased and is having an impact on decisions, whether they be local, whether they be elections, whether they be national, you can see, you can see that. And so I think that this awakening, and I think we will see that, you know, going into this international COP meeting at the end of this year. The second thing is just that the solutions are there. Like if you look at, especially, which I think is particularly important in the context of developing countries that, that wind and solar are affordable, that you don't have to go into a fossil future, that we can, you know, create an, an alternative development pathway that is clean. That gives me a lot of hope, I think. And I guess the third thing is just that I, I can feel the, and this is linked with the first, but a bit of the Momentum. I'm very lucky that I get up every day and I have stories in my email box from Greenpeace offices all around the world of all kinds of different people who are taking action. And so I see that level of, of burning, you know, a, agency that is out there. And I think we're seeing a lot of nonlinear changes happening, that things are happening quickly as we must make them happen quickly. So that's what gives me lots of hope. It's amazing to hear somebody to reflect on that hope. So it can also be helpful. Obviously, you are recognized as a leader in your field. So I was wondering if you have any advice for other women who are also looking to be leaders in their own field. What would you say to them? Gosh, there's lots of things. I think one thing which I've experienced recently is if you see a job that you really would love to do, don't analyze it all and figure out whether you could do it or this or the other thing. Apply. Apply and believe that you could you could do it. I think oftentimes there's a culture where you kind of feel like you, you have to prove yourself. No, actually just believe that you can do it and apply for something right away and don't judge yourself. <laughs> just jump into the mix of it. I think the other thing I would say for women leaders is to find community uh, with other women leaders and compare notes. And I think that's something that I do try and do regularly because it is create spaces for that wherever you are. And there, I mean, leadership is not necessarily running organizations. You have leadership in every single part of your life, whether it's, you know, how you engage in your local community, whatever it may be, but sit with other women, listen and create support for each other and how you think about things. And the last, I guess, is just to really look at examples around the world where you see female woman leadership and how successful it is. We've seen that in the pandemic where, where there were women leaders in place, that that's, you know, gone in many cases better. And I think to therefore 
believe in your role as a woman and making the world a better place. I believe that if we have more woman leadership, we'll get there faster. And there's lots of examples for that. Oh, yes, definitely. And New Zealand is just one example. But yes, a lot of lessons out there. And I guess for the next generation, as you think about what you have learned as an activist, you think towards the future and the kind of world we're leaving the next generation and the changes we might make, what would you like young people to know, preserve and remember? I think, well, I'd like them to know, preserve and remember that few things. I think one thing is that what they are doing now and in this moment is making a difference. I I experience it and I think you know, we talked about how people how to have conversations with people. I think the role that young people have in reaching people's hearts, which is really what's needed now, is incredibly important. I think the other thing is to know that there are going to be highs and lows. <laughs> And, that, and when there are lows, that doesn't mean that there's not going to be another high. So if you're an activist, I think, you know, Greenpeace is 50. We're still at it, right? And there have been moments of great euphoria and there have been moments of great despair. So you need to think of this in your own resilience and not have despair if things don't go your way on a specific campaign or thing that you're trying but know that it will come back, that there will be, a, there will be another moment that, that you can have that win, that you can move things forward. And that, that, you know, that that's, I think that's very important. I think especially now where people aren't able to go out on the streets and be active, you know, that's coming back. It's not gone. The, the foundation there for activism is not gone. And the last thing, I guess, is, yeah, really to take care on on the anxiety part of things. I know Greenpeace does different workshops with youth about climate anxiety and others. And, and it's, you know, if you're feeling that, and I think one of the greatest, what the literature shows is one of the greatest ways to combat climate anxiety is, is actually to be active, but know that you're not alone in that. And there's lots of resources out there on climate anxiety or other forms of anxiety that, you know, can bring you together and give you the support it's not, and I guess my final thing would just be in a way to say that I'm sorry. It breaks my heart that young people today have to be so active. It's a failure of a generation that didn't make it possible for them to be able to just enjoy their youth, but rather to have to be fighting so hard for their future. So we will get there together, but I wish that they didn't have to be so anxious about their futures. Well, there, you have nothing to feel sorry for. Yes, maybe some in your generation, but not not you. And that is just very moving and wonderful advice. And, and I have to say, yes, there is anxiety out there, but even the anxiety is an indication of just being alive and aware to the realities. It's not, you know. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's, I have always hoped and dreamt to work with young people because I've always felt that it is their future. You know, I mean, it's so inspiring to be working with young people all around the world. And as I've said, I mean, it is, I, I feel that we are in the midst of transformational change and that working together around these kind of key moments where you can see those shifts happening, that the unimaginable 
things that you never thought were going to happen can happen. And that would be my other advice to young activists is just when you aren't expecting it, <laughs> something will happen and you'll be like, I can't believe they just decided that. Holy cow. And, and then you got to celebrate. Definitely have to celebrate. <laughs> I, I want to celebrate that. I feel we're ma- we're in this transformational period, as you say, uh, in closing, we're kind of this second industrial revolution, green revolution, and we will get there. And I have faith in the scientists. I have faith in the activists. Uh, we want to thank you, Jennifer Morgan, and congratulate Greenpeace on its 50th anniversary and for all of your achievements and for all of your good work. Thank you for all you've done to highlight injustice, inspire activists, and all of us to take more responsibility to create sustainable futures and be realistic and proactive about tackling the most important issues of our time. Thank you for adding your voice to the One Planet podcast. Thank you for having me here. One Planet podcast is produced by the creative process. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Hans Alarcon with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate interview producer on this podcast was Hans Alarcon. Digital media coordinator is Hannah Story Brown. Theme music is written and performed by Juan Sanchez. We hope you've enjoyed this program. If you would like to get involved in One Planet podcast and be part of the climate change solution, just drop us a line at team at oneplanetpodcast.org. Thank you for listening.